You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 24. I'm your host, Chris Webster. Today I interview Michael Ashley of the Center for Digital Archaeology and we talk all things digital site recording. If you ever wanted to know what the process was, what the flow was to digital site recording, this is the show to listen to and this one will get you started. Let's get to the show. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. It's just me today as Chris gets settled in his new life in New Zealand, so hopefully he'll be on in two weeks for our next show, episode 25. But episode 24 is featuring uh, Mr. Michael Ashley, co-founder of the Center for Digital Archaeology. Michael, how's it going? It's going really well. Nice. So why don't you tell us uh, what the Center for Digital Archaeology is? We had you, we'll link to this in the show notes, but we had you on a couple of years ago on the CRM Archaeology podcast, and that was a little more general discussion about digital archaeology. But I want to we're going to get into some other stuff here um, this time. So why don't you start us off by telling, you, telling us what the Center for Digital Archaeology is and what you're doing now. Great. And thanks again for having me. This is awesome. No problem. Uh, so yeah, we, we started the Center for Digital Archaeology back in 2011. Um, out of UC Berkeley, we specifically were trying to help all of us uh, who are in the realm of, of archaeology and CRM and culture heritage take good advantage of digital tools. Uh, and it's just been amazing. You know, we're still dealing a bit with the kicking and screaming into the 21st century issue on the one hand, <laughs> and then at the same time being epically surprised about all the remarkable capabilities that we're now seeing um, and emerging. So. Uh, we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We're celebrating our fifth anniversary uh, in April. And um, yeah, well, I, I, I assume as we go through the show, I can talk a bit more about it. But the, the core things that we have been doing over the past five years have been about actually developing technologies, specifically um, a content management system that's open source called Mukudu CMS, which principally helps indigenous communities um, save, preserve, and share their digital culture and heritage. And we have a, a web service that helps with that. And something called Codify, which is our, our paperless collection, collection curate and web platform, which I guarantee we'll talk about today for sure. <laughs> nice. Well, Codify is is probably mostly what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but before we get there, uh, you know, we were talking in the pre-show about about really just nailing this down and what this means and setting a foundation for this. Because, uh, you know, I talk to a lot of people, you talk to a lot of people, and the the big buzzwords out there are digital data, digital data, you know, and, and collecting things digital and doing all this stuff. But I don't know that people really understand exactly what that means from start to finish. So um, why don't you sort of kick off this discussion and guide us through how what what that means to create, use, and then archive digital data. Yeah, it, it is a. It, it actually is a surprisingly <laughs> fertile ground for conversation. <laughs> so here in the United States of America, I think a, a one surprising fact would be that about twenty percent of our nation doesn't have internet access. Hmm. Just think about that. You go over to Africa, when nearly ninety-seven percent of the continent of Africa, it's not a, it's not a country. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so, uh, doesn't have internet access. So we, that's the first thing though, is that we still have the, I'm here in, you know, in, in Marin County, very close to San Francisco and the San Francisco Bay area near Silicon Valley. And the assumption is that we have all the data we could ever eat and we all have digital devices. And the reality is, is that even as we do this recording on Skype, the world is connected. So you would think that, di that, that digital recording and the production of, of data, and in the, in the pre-show, the setup here is that we need to talk about the difference between, say, data as things that we can do stuff with and documents, which is actually what we do most of the time. So the two kind of core documents we see in, in archaeology in 2016 still are Microsoft Excel as a database mm -hmm. and, and Word documents and actual like document documents that are generated or, or, or converted into other things like PDF documents. Uh, and that's pretty much about it. <laughs> so right. that's, that's kind of sadly about 90% of the resulting um, stuff that's done digitally, even if we're out there using really fancy things like art, or, you know, 
differential GPS units and drones and all this other stuff. At the end of the day, what's generated, in fact, generally required by law are paper forms. And that mm -hmm. still happens to this day worldwide. So it's we we need to kind of what I hope we'll do in this in this conversation is talk about kind of putting paper in its place, understanding the benefits uh, and really getting into like the the, the, the the carrot moment of this, like all the cool things we can do without getting blinded by the whiz bang. And at the same time, the 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 I heard a fantastic term this weekend. I'll I'll I'll, I'll share who and why. Uh, but we're also producing what we, we might want to call technical debt, which hmm. is building this huge capital uh, expenditure of debt that our future generations are just, are just going to have to deal with, which is like the stuff that we used to put on CDs. Remember CDs? Or oh, yeah. floppies or <laughs> zip drives or in some form of app or, you know, Microsoft Access 2000. Yeah. And these are very, very scary, serious issues that I also think we should talk about a little bit. You still find uh, the, I don't know about the five and a quarter, but definitely the three and a half inch um, floppies. Did I get that right? It's either five and a half or three and a quarter. Both. I don't know. Both. Yeah. Both so you, you you still find those in, in project folders at the BLM when you get to do a lit search, you know, you go back far enough and they turned those over with their project. And I mean, I don't know how you think there'd be a whole box of them if there's like a report on there because they didn't hold that much information, but um yeah, you still find those. And I'm willing to bet most of them are unreadable at this point. Not only unreadable from a hardware standpoint, like who can actually plug that into something, but unreadable from a magnetic data standpoint. Like it's just gone. So, um, you know, and it, before we get too far with this, you mentioned having, uh, you know, how the the sort of quote unquote digital that people do these days is basically Microsoft Word and access and creating site forms and things like that. To play devil's, devil's advocate a little bit, what's wrong with that? We're talking about CRM archaeology. We're talking about people who are just going out doing surveys. Why do I need to get some big complicated database? Why do I need to collect my data any differently than I've been doing it for the last 40 years? Um, you know, what, what's, the, what's the big deal? I'm an archaeologist. Why do I need to do that? Uh, so without... <laughs> <laughs> pulling out what's left of my hair. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> so on the one hand, nothing. Like if the forms that we're asked to fill out provide an opportunity for us to formulate excellent interpretations of archaeological sites and this term that we like to use, differentially share that back out. So what I mean by that is if that form that we're collecting very precise geolocation data and 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 site site information that can't be shared with the public mm -hmm. could could magically split itself into a bunch of different parts and also be usable in curriculum for K to 12 or or it could be shared with the you know the tribal owners or indigenous communities that may be you know whose land we might be um inter uh, disturbing <laughs> or you know, when we pull out the backhoe and pull out the site or we do rescue archaeology, if those forms are actually sufficient and not just recording, but actually truly telling the story of what happened when we did the archaeological assessment and what actually happened in the past, I'm in. Mm -hmm. but I'm right. in. So that's it's it's but they're not. And we all know that. And um, so if we all think about the kinds of archaeology we do worldwide, so um not to just focus on CRM. So let's talk about um, quote unquote, as I say, academic archaeology or research-based archaeology. The the main job that I do, Chris, all the time is what we have now lovingly called data therapy. Mm -hmm. So data therapy is we sit down and people say, okay, well, this is what we're trying to, this is what we've been doing for five years, 50 years, literally 150 years, like the, back in when, when Chicago was digging a site in, say, Israel. Yeah. This is what we've been doing forever. And we're still go, trying to find records that were done at the turn of the century to turn that into knowledge now in 2017, say. That's mm -hmm. the idea. What we want to be able to do is have everything that's ever been said about this site, not just the site, because the site boundaries change over time, but the area, the place, the survey, ceramics, uh, human remains, whatever it might be, at our fingertips in real time so that we can actually make better decisions in the field and we can tell better stories down the line. Almost every, almost everyone I talk to says that's actually what they want. So let's just take those two contrasts. 
camera A, got a bunch of physical written documents that are sitting in someone's shelf that we can copy and make copies of, that someone has to go back through, which could be tens or hundreds of thousands of pages. Camera B, we have a way of actually having, having thoughtfully converted that into searchable data so that we can actually pull things together at the moment that we're trying to make decisions about, okay, so is this a feature? Like, do, should we, should we like keep digging or is, is this something that actually indicates uh, some interesting thing about the past that we might want to tell in the future, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So basically the, the litmus test for me of all, every method, physical, analog, digital, whatever is, what are the research questions that are driving you? And what are the best tools to help you answer those questions? Which mm -hmm. sounds like science, sounds like good methodological practice. It just turns out that now, and I, it's funny because I just said, I, I gave a, a keynote talk last year and I said for the first time, it really felt like just last year in 2015 that we'd finally kind of turned the corner where, where in certain cases, digital is actually better than, than analog ways of doing many different things. And it, it just is. There, there is a, that's a truism now. Um, and it's not just my opinion. I mean, it's like, again, we're just looking at our ability to do things. And that's why we digitize everything, you know, yeah. where we keep converting paper after the fact into <laughs> digital stuff, which in many cases is handwritten things by people who are dead. Yeah. And that sucks. I mean, you can't go back to these people and ask, you know, on page 75 of your notebook, the, the thing with all the coffee stains where you said, aha, I, and you can't read a thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a problem, right? Yeah. So that oh, that's the other. That's the. There's a, we have a technological debt, but we also just have a debt service in generating a physical or digital archaeological record that's not usable by people. Well, and you're talking about tech debt and archaeological debt going back to people who are dead. Um, the unfortunate thing is, uh, CRM in this country, as you know, is like one of those check cashing places. Um, you know, we just keep we just keep going back and back and back because there are people listening to this podcast right now, I'll guarantee you, that are digitizing paper site forms into Word documents. I mean, that's all they're doing. They're, they're going to spend their whole day doing that. And they all just turned off the podcast. So let's talk about them. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it's not their fault. Let's it's not their them, fault. Let's buy them beer. Or <laughs> yeah. Get them exactly. Let's at, least, uh, let's at least get them standing desks. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. At least stand up while you're doing this. Yeah. Um, or treadmill desks so they can train their surveying. How about that? Yeah. There you go. Um, but you no. Know, so you know, bringing this back a little bit to the stages of digital archaeological data, we talked about you know the need and, and why we should start creating data digitally, and we're kind of moving into how we use that um, because I I think you know, one of the things I've always said is is half our job as CRM archaeologists, um, academics are a little different, but as CRM archaeologists, half our job is to satisfy the client's needs and create the report and give them the notice to proceed and, and record all the sites and do the survey and stuff like that. The other half of our job is sharing our information and sharing what we did and, and telling people about it. And so in CRM, we call all the things that we create from the report to the site records, to the field notes, to everything, we call it gray literature. And we say that somewhat disparagingly because we know that we're going to spend months writing this fantastic report and literally nobody's going to look through it. The agency's not going to look through it. They might skim through it, make sure all the right parts are there and everything, and then they kick it back to you if it's not. But realistically, nobody's going to look through that. And the agency looking through it doesn't really count because they don't care. You know, They just want to make sure it was done properly and, and they're not doing anything with that information. The client's certainly not. They're looking at the front page, the management recommendations, and they're saying, okay, yeah, I can go dig here or I've got to spend another $2 million. That's all they care about. So... We call this gray literature, and I feel like if we collect stuff the way that you were talking about in the beginning, we can help sort of bring gray literature into the light, you know, um, and and bring it out of the dark gray dungeons that it lives in, and and help and and share this with people. And that doesn't just mean this is why we're talking about the stages of digital data, digital archaeological data. That doesn't mean typing your site forms into Word documents. That's not what that means. And it, as far as I'm concerned, a Word document is not digital data. It's the digital representation of your paper site form. But it's not digital data because it's not searchable. It's not usable. So 
I, I've heard people before. I heard somebody yesterday say that they saw digital data from somebody when all they met was PDFs on a CD, and and that was it. And I was like, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what digital data means. So moving on, moving on from here, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, with the methods that you're creating and the methods that you're promoting, what can people do? Um, getting into the using phase of this, what can people do with their digital data if they correct it right? You know, what are some of the the possibilities for people who just don't have any idea what to do with these data? Like, why should I collect digital data when all I need to make is site forms? What what is the reason they should do that, and what can they do with it, or what can other people do with it? More importantly, all right. So great great question, and and I'm gonna I, I want to bring some other uh, entities, if you will, into the conversation here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was really fortunate to have participated this weekend in LA um, at, at a board meeting with the Institute of Field Research. So um, you know the Institute of Field Research is is you know, offers field schools around the world. Um, so they have a good sense of what's happening out there, and the whole concept of the of the session was to bring together uh, all of us who are kind of working in this digital field uh, to to rap about different approaches to doing exactly what you just described. So just so we so we had FAMES, the Federated Archaeology Information Management System. So it's Sean Ross, in fact, that was the guy that was talking about this whole technical debt, which is really a fantastic concept. We had open context with Eric and Sarah Kanza. Uh, talking about open data and big data, really cool things. We had we had um, the Center for Digital Antiquity. Uh, we get we do get mixed up a lot, but they you know focusing on, on TDAR. And I heard it was really fantastic. So Adam Brin was there, and, and his colleague Leanne, we're her last name right now, but they were some interesting things there. Just to kind of cycle back a couple of minutes on making that gray literature less gray, right? Mm-hmm. Sharing it out, but also talking about some of the epic challenges here. And that's going to be my segue in just a second to talk about how we need to start addressing the way that we collect data. So let's just take a look at the challenge. You have an archaeological site report. You have a primary form. That primary form, almost every single time, can't be made public Mm -hmm. by itself. If you put that form into TDAR, as it is, you're going to give away, as it were, the exact field location of things that can be could necessarily need to be protected, could be sacred to people. I mean, it, it, I also want to want to call out. So the next the next actor on the stage I want to bring back is the the Society for American Archaeology's um, principles of archaeological ethics, which mm-hmm. is just touches on your point of where we're, we're in. The intention of that written in 1996, so we're talking a long time ago, right? 20 years ago. (laughs) It's actually being reviewed right now, which is fantastic. And public reporting and publication, records and preservation, training and resources, um, the intellectual public education outreach. These these are the core ideas. So the idea is that it is actually incumbent upon us for at least the last 20 years. So let's just call it, say, pre-digital, so forever, (laughs) For us to produce knowledge that can be shared and that is accessible to various publics, plural. So by that we mean A has to be intelligible. So if we just give people like a sheet of numbers that count bones that are made out of you know animals of various forms, that's not really useful by itself. You need to be able to produce, you know, the reproducibility factor. We need to be able to have information in a form where people can go make draw their own conclusions or maybe even reinterpret. And, and then on the CRM side, you know, how many of us have had to go and, and collect? I mean, you just are doing this right now, where you go back to the various information centers and try to get information back out about the site areas that you're now tasked to record. Right. Right. And yep. I can I don't have to fill in the rest of the sentence because we just lost <laughs> about 17 people on the podcast. So Yes, having a, a, a digital version of a PDF, a PDF version of a site record that may or may not even be OCR, so that's optically characteristically recognized, mm-hmm. into a form that's searchable isn't helping us. No. So, end, end rant. Now, imagine the following. So I'm going to take us back. I'm going to age myself a little tiny bit to like pre- early college years to 1991. 
Okay, so that's mm-hmm. 25 years ago. I just did the math on paper. <laughs> I actually wrote it on paper. Nice. I used a calculator and then I wrote it down. Uh, so 25 years ago, um, I was working for Alaska Airlines and I was working in their um, production facility, which is where they do maintenance on planes in, in Oakland. And they were trialing a tablet. Yes, a mm-hmm. tablet. A tough book tablet that, yeah. was, that had wireless sending and receiving technologies for the purpose of doing the maintenance checks. And I mm-hmm. was tasked with developing the database that could actually run on that thing. And we guess what we did? We built forms. We built the, the what's called the, the routine maintenance form and the non-routine maintenance forms. And we did the whole process. And here's a, some of the cool things that we could do back then, which we still don't do now. Mad Libs. So what you do on a routine form is you come up to the cowl and you pull it off the engine and you look for instruction, insert instruction here, you look for corrosion because the plane's been flying up to Alaska and they load it full of fish. Yeah. Okay. And oh, look, there's corrosion. Next step, get a non-routine form, fill it out for corrosion. Call the inspector. The FAA guy called the redshirt guys as a called, come over and they inspect it. And they go, yep, and they fill out this form. And instead of having to write the same thing over and over, zone 21, blah, 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 blah. They just tap on the form and it puts them into the right zone, as they call it. So like left wing, right wing, whatever. Tap on the word corrosion so they don't have to remember corrosion has two R's in it. <laughs> so everyone's got the same thing going there. <laughs> and, and, and they're done. They tap three things and they've actually filled a sentence out. And what's that? Control vocabulary, taxonomy, keywords. That everyone loved it. They just loved it conceptually. I didn't invent this. I'm just, I was just the, the, the young apprentice, if you will of just what we've been able to do for literally forever with, with computers. That's mm-hmm. a better outcome, a better process than paper. Everybody agreed. Okay, so that's 25 years ago. That's before I even started at Berkeley as an undergrad. So I'm just saying like, we're still not doing that now. We're starting, we're, 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 like the iPad came out and it's as if we reinvented technology, which we have not. And, and the kind of information that we can generate is simply better if we do that. It's searchable by design. Um, all of the work of of going through and deciding if archaeology has an A or an E in it. Uh, you, you can't, <laughs> like, someone's got to go through the trouble of, like, linking all those things together. Mm-hmm. Of the fact that these things are all in a particular area or of a particular topic or whatever. And those are standards that are standards of practice, uh, standards of, of format, standards of thinking through, semantically what things mean and it just turns out that the more people that can participate in that experience the better your search will be that's another thing that's really interesting is like but that's why you know google works through magic right no it Mm -hmm. works through just millions and actually billions and billions of mistakes people putting in the wrong thing and then it says as you know did you mean blank and we can't we just can't even approach those concepts when we have you know site site records that in no, in, in no way are data. So generating data natively, born born digital data, is one goal. But we we tend to go to a higher higher um, ideal, which is the notion of born archival data, which is to say that as soon as you start from the planning phase into going out and collecting the information, all the way through to its end of life in some archive somewhere, the notion is that that's, that's an archival process that the information gets better over time. And and the steps to doing that are really, like, not hard. So, yeah. And I want to ask you about some of the some of those collection methods, like you mentioned at Alaska Airlines, and the, and the stuff that we're doing now, and uh, and some possible issues with that that I've heard from from some people and that I've experienced myself. But real quick, now we're going to take a short break and uh, play a promo for one of our other podcasts. Check it out. <laughs> The 
CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. Okay, we're back. And I wanted to address something that I've heard other people mention, and I'm sure some people are, are thinking about it on this show right now. Um, and it's one of the, uh, uh, I would say, fundamental problems that, that people who are really entrenched in paper might have about, uh, about going digital. Um, because one of the things I tell people is exactly what you said, Michael, is the ease of putting together a form where you can create your drop-down menus, you can create your your automatically entered information and things like that. And I'm doing that in the field right now. I have a number of drop-downs that we use and, and you know, radio button checkboxes for different things. But I feel like it needs to be said, uh, especially if somebody's out there creating their own thing right now or doing whatever they're doing, you, you have to be careful with what you put in a drop-down box sometimes because... Uh, just like typing projectile points, <laughs> which is something I hate to do in the field, um, you know, you get a, a I, I've seen a number of things on my project uh, already where, you know, somebody collected a point and they called it something because they thought that's what it looked like. It's not to say that that's not what that thing is, but or or what it's colloquially called in this region. But it's it's putting that instantly into a massive box that's that's that carries a lot of baggage with it. Right. So. All I'm saying is, is 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 watching what you put in your drop-down boxes and what you put on your radio buttons because you don't want to automatically put a bias on your data by somebody having to jam that into that into one of those fields that you've selected that you pre-selected for them. I guess that goes back to um, how we're collecting the digital data and how we're crafting these new digital forms that we're creating and how we're making it so not only is it is it easier and it helps build sentences and takes away some of the tedious stuff for you. But then it also allows you the freedom to put in other things that might be non-standard a little bit, you know, and allow you to put in different information. I don't know. What do you think about that? Have you encountered many situations? I know you've worked on a number of academic projects. Have you encountered any kickback from those guys where you created something for them that had maybe too specific a drop-down menus, or did they just love it entirely? Well, this this is actually great, and I mean, I, I feel like so far we've we've done a bit of ranting, so it's time to to really <laughs> like like make this a positive thing. So first of all, uh, you and I have had this conversation. We both agree it isn't mm-hmm. just about taking uh, a, a, the metaphor of a form and making that digital. Right. So it, the way so we're 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 heavily heavily bought into this notion of UX or user experience and user centered design. So in that case, everything that we think that should be done, uh, all who practice this notion, should be helping to encourage people to do the right thing, but also to think. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those things aren't the same thing, but hopefully they are. So here's an example. If you, if you actually are required on the form in order to, like for compliance, to make a decision between mm-hmm. A, B, C, or D, apples, oranges, pears, and bananas, then providing those as a pull-down list makes all the sense in the world. Yep. If we're asking you to interpret whether or not it's fruit and we only give you fruit options, that's kind of going to defeat the purpose, right? So yep. uh, it, it, so, it, it, so I'm just saying like it, it isn't just about that. And, and that's where decision trees and, and various kinds of ideas and having free-form text are all great, along with uh, a classic example is this. Um, we deal with this all of, all of the time. There are many times where standards of data require you to do things like this particular thing requires you to put in a date and that date must be in the following format of YYY, you know, MMDD. Mm-hmm. But all you know is it's sometime before 1890. So you know what people put in? 1890. Mm-hmm. Because they can't not do that. So you're absolutely right. And that, so that's, that's one factor of it is like you have, if, if you basically force people to not be able to put things into the margins of the paper, as it were, digitally, mm-hmm. they're going to go back to paper. I will go back to paper. If the, if the, if the, if the, if the, if the digital construct 
doesn't allow me to cheat because I come up with some really bright idea about like, I don't know, well, the forum is basically asking me to put in X, Y, and Z, but I just found X, you know, I found Z, I found D, and I've linked them together and come up with Y. Uh, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> so, so you have to allow and encourage that capability. And that's, and then you iterate from there. That's the other thing. It's a nonstop process where, okay, so we tried this thing and, and a lot, the, this is, okay, this is a favorite. The number one reason why these forms fail is because they're stuck because they cost a lot of money to build in the first place mm-hmm. or a lot of time to build in the first place. You can you have to, we're, I'm trying, we're trying to use tools now that allow people to do what's called RAD, rapid application development. You have to, in, that's the beautiful thing about the world right now is that in the world of digital, we can actually uh, use tools that, that allow us to change up those forms uh, and the way that we collect the data every day if we wanted to. And that the, the, the best success stories I have are this. A, I want to just get out, out this on the record if it were. <laughs> I've never lost data. No project we've ever been on has ever lost data ever. The, the number one reason people say, I don't want to go da- digital is because I'm afraid I'm going to blank. Then I will remind them of the story I just heard last year at Mobilize in the past, where on the Pompeii project, uh, the a field director had his entire three-inch binder full of paper forms, had it set it on his car, turned around, and the garbage collector threw it into the back of the truck and drove away. Wow. Okay, so... There you go. Paper gone. No backup because it's all paper. Yeah. So that's 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 definitely one um, to, to think about. And the second is that on this project we did last summer in Israel, um, I was physically there, but I never got asked questions about how to use the form because we got literally thousands of hours of responses over the last two years that went into the design of the form. Mm-hmm. So it's not a form. It's a process. That when you begin your day, the stuff that you see on your screen should be the only things that you need to know about. It's four o'clock in the morning. Where do I start? Oh, okay. These are the squares I'm interested in digging. I tap on that square. These are the open excavation units. And these are the ones I want to open. I need to create a new one, hit a button, create a new one. I need to assign it to John, tap, and it's assigned to John. Do you see the difference? It's like Mm -hmm. it's workflow driven, thinking through the process putting just in front of you exactly what you need to do. Who wouldn't want that? I mean, I want that, yeah. <laughs> you know? And there's a great metaphor for that, and that we, we use a lot, which is this notion of TurboTax. So basically what, what happens in most of the way that we record anything, and this is so far beyond archeological data, just think about anything. If, if we give people the end result, the form, without the process, Mm-hmm. If I told you to, in order for you to do your taxes, you need to know what goes in this box for all of your expenses last year. Go. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just can't fill in the box, right? I mean, you had to go out and like, collect the odometer readings at the beginning. You had to remember to collect the odometer readings at the beginning <laughs> of the year. Everyone forgets. All yeah. of you listening, you didn't do it last year. I take a picture now in my phone every year of my odometer, and then I just have to search for January 1st, and there it is. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's the difference. The difference is like if we have people collect the form data, which is the end of the story, then of course it's going to be a fail. So what TurboTax does is it asks you a lot of questions, and the encouragement is that red blocks at the top of the right-hand corner that basically is red that says you owe $7,000 to the federal government. <laughs> and then as you answer more questions, as you go through these questions, you never see a form. You just mm-hmm. keep answering questions. And they're kind of, in some of them are actually kind of fun. And then you get through that whole process and hopefully it's turned green mm-hmm. or, it's, or it's a number you can live with. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Meanwhile, in the background, it's actually filling out all the forms for you. That is what we're trying to do with Codify is, is the notion of like, okay, well, I'm here, I'm in California, so I fill out this stuff, and at the end of the day, it generates the form. So putting the form in its place, making, just dispelling the notion of what we're trying to do by going paperless is actually simply presenting you more paper in a digital form. Absolutely, and I, I, think, uh, I think what you said right there is, is key to this whole thing, is, is really, kind of getting rid of the form. The form is not necessary. The form is a is a throwback to when 
we needed prompts for for what to actually write down about a site, right? Um, and, you know, agencies were probably upset about getting typed up uh, on typewriters or even probably handwritten notes, basically, about sites that were found. And, and at some point, they probably said, you know what? It'd be really nice if everybody turned in a site form that had this, 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 and this on it. And over time, that evolved into, you know, the site forms that we have today in various states. But the, the form is just... It's just a memory jogger. That's all it is, and there's no reason for it anymore. So if we had, if we had a digital way to answer these questions about the site, like you say, and then that information is not even in a in in a ideal situation. I mean, it's 2016 for Christ's sake. It's not even going onto a form in the background. It's it's literally just going into a database that you can query and. After you're done answering questions about the site, you can then ask the database questions and say, now give me answers. I've given you all this information. Now give me answers. And then we hit a button, send that straight over to the agency that we're working with and can do the same thing. But now for the entire state, not just your project, you know, you can, you can query that information for the whole state. But I think, I, I, I mean, that's going to be a while before the agencies are ready to do that, but we can, we can at least get them ready for it by by recording in a way that we don't actually need the form. The only reason we spit out a form is because the agency needs it, but we're creating data that is usable in another way. And then when they're ready for it, we'll already be there. That's where I want to go. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say, you know, um, I'm, I'm more and more encouraged by some of the things that we're now encountering in terms of this. Let's not forget, like, um, I'm, I'm old enough to know that the tax forms have actually improved over time. <laughs> I can't I can't imagine what life was like anymore before TurboTax, right? Right. Yeah. But the whole paperless reduction act is a kind of a real thing. Mm-hmm. And they they like they time how long it takes you to do that paper form. And the idea is to make that process more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um we can we can kind of invert that by basically saying, let's let's think through what our outcomes are. So this I I, I would I would feel like I really have like not done my job if we don't talk about um the actions that we're we're doing in the field, the outcomes of those actions that mm-hmm. are actually, as you said, you said that are actually supported by the memory jogger. So let let's let's just take our you know we could both kind of do this, but uh, back to the whole data therapy thing. It's like a day in the life. So all the things you need to record if you're doing CRM include things like mileage, hours of how many people are working when. All those like little things, your per diems, all those things are being carried in your head. Then when you actually get to do your survey, you're going to record the various things that you're finding, the actual locations, where you're finding those things. Does I, I, I start querying questions like, does time matter? Let's just play with this just for one second. Does the time of day matter when you're doing survey? Yeah, Absolutely. Does the lighting matter when you're doing survey? Yep. Does it matter that it was sunny versus overcast that day? Yeah. Are you going to find better? Are you going to have a better time finding things if you're wearing, you know, polarized sunglasses on a overcast day than when it's, you know, raining or bright sun or noon? And the answer to all those things, of course, is yes. Mm-hmm. Similarly, if you're going to be doing things like using Munsell, are you going to, you know, or a color chart? Does it matter, you know, under what conditions you're, you're Documented. This doesn't matter whether or not your your um, your subject is wet or dry. Mm-hmm. We can do this all day long, and that's suddenly you realize. Wait a minute! Wow, there's so many things I could be thinking about and could be recording. And and those who like you know, if you're lucky enough to be doing kind of more of a kind of research oriented project, you actually get to do those things. Mm-hmm. So so now let's talk about how you might record that stuff. Um, so. You want to take a GPS point because you want to get a location. You want to take some pictures. Uh, you want to be able to record some things. If you're doing environmental work, audio might actually come into play. You might actually want to record the sound of that bird that's in that particular nest. Um, video, incredibly useful. Just being able to take an audio note is like, you know, I'm not so much sure about what the hell this thing is, but it might be something really cool or whatever. Um, if I'm actually asking an informants to have you know, to or subject matter experts mm-hmm. recording a video, a little audio recording, could, I mean, all of these things go such a long way to helping us build a much more rich and dynamic record. Except that if we go back to CRM, you actually have to make a couple of crazy decisions, which 
which suck. A, if I'm, if I'm going to record it, I'm going to report it. I have to write it down in some form of photo log, which is nightmarish and painful. Um, and, and B, um, if I don't do that, then I have to have yet a different system, some form of shadow system for managing all of those things. Right. Back to what we're trying to do with Codify. It's just like, it's actually about digital asset management. It's about, yes, you are taking pictures, you're generating documents, you're recording GPS tracks, you're using a total station, you might be generating XML, you might be putting stuff into ArcGIS. All of those things are actually happening. And so it is about really thinking through the total information ecology end to end and archivally. Um, and that, again, really transcends beyond archaeology. So here are the encouragements. Training, learning to do these things, produces better information, produces better knowledge, produces better data, um, can equal pay raises, can equal you getting hired for better jobs. So there's lots of great carrots there. So, so basically thinking through the, the variety of different things that we can do to just improve this whole process, I feel is like the, that's the sharp point of the stick right now. All right. So we're going to take another short break and, uh, and then come back and wrap all this up and um, give everybody the answers to every question they've ever wanted to know. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. Did aliens build Stonehenge? Did the Easter Island statues walk? Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries. Hoax or fact? Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archie Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. All right, we're back for our last segment. And uh, before the show, um, Michael brought up an article from another host on the Archaeology Podcast Network, Mr. Bill White. And we'll link to um, we'll link to his article that we're going to talk about here uh, in a second in the show notes. As as we are linking to all the other things that were mentioned, um, those will all be in the show notes for this uh, episode. So check that out. Um, but Michael, why don't you uh, why don't you introduce Bill's uh, article and then we'll we'll talk about it a little bit. Yeah. So it's funny. I just actually just I I tend to try to do the Google search for paperless archaeology and just came across it <laughs> a couple of days ago. And I wrote to him like I'd forgotten entirely who it was because you know senility kicks in when you're about <laughs> forty years old. Exactly. Um, so the article is great. It's tongue in cheek. It's called "Warning: Do Not Do Paperless Archaeology," and it's got some fantastic statements in it. So I definitely encourage everyone to read it. Uh, it's principally kind of CRM focused. Uh, he brings up some important points about the fact that I, I mean, he has this uh, analogy, he, as he calls it, which is taking a look at like paperless archaeology debate is similar to when we cut the landline and 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 have gone to to cell phones and how how it's basically digital is here, it's ubiquitous, and yet digital technologies aren't and tools actually specifically don't do archaeology, and that's absolutely true. And I think. If there's anything that I've, I, I got out of my, our conversation today mm-hmm. is that we're really trying to iterate and riff on the notion of what we really want to do is encourage everybody to just is, is to think and act, think, act and share and figure out ways of doing that. And digital tools are extraordinarily useful for doing those things, but they're not crutches. Uh, I really like a lot of what you were saying earlier, Chris, about how forms can kind of stifle the imagination and then we'll figure out workarounds around it. Similarly, um, I feel like that's true about many of the forms that we're dealing with, with, uh, with physical and digital tools. The physical forms stop us from doing things and, you know, using a Trimble or, uh, can, can, or can also be a challenge depending on what you're doing. It does some things extraordinarily well and other things are more challenging and that's true of basically every tool that we're doing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, please, please chime in and then I'll tell you how we're trying to do things a little bit differently with Codify. Um, but, but go for it. Yeah. Well, you know, 
one thing about Bill's article, and, and I had read it too when it came out. This was back in uh, September, I think he said. And and of course, Bill's Bill's article was a little tongue in cheek because, um, like you said, because he he really is all for the the digital stuff. But he did have, you know, we've had conversations before, and he might be um, coming to this from a from a way that that other people see it too. Um, and and I want to alleviate those fears, or at least say, you know, come come at it from a different direction because a lot of people that are friends with me. <laughs> <laughs> and probably a lot of people that are friends with you are know how much we talk about, you know, digital archaeology, using tablets, using whatever, and, and recording things digital. And it's not really just for the sake of using new and fun technology, although that is a side benefit when you're in this business that you um, you can justify to your spouse the purchase of the latest tablet that came out. Hey, it's research, right? So, um, you know, it's not just about using the fanciest tools and the fanciest toys, and it's not just about doing all this stuff um, for no reason whatsoever. And one of Bill's things that he said in his article was that, uh, you know, don't let the tools get in the way of the archaeology, right? And one of the things that I think is that needs to be understood about where we would like digital archaeology to go, uh, for lack of a better term, is digital archaeology is not just recording into uh, you know a customized form with drop-down menus on a tablet. That's just a, a facet of digital archaeology. Digital archaeology is is actually what can you do with that data after you collect it. And and I think one of the things I said in the in the in the pre-show here was was I, I can foresee a time and, and there's obviously people doing this right now with with you know big academic projects and there's there's grad students out there that are going and digitizing a whole bunch of site forms and then doing these meta analysis on different things but I can see a time in the future where we'll have recorded a lot of stuff on a landscape and which we already have but there are some counties uh, you know out here in the west and some counties elsewhere where where a lot of the a lot of the counties already been recorded, like a lot of the counties already been surveyed in in one way, shape, or uh, you know, form or another. And instead of a class one, or f- instead of a an early phase survey, whatever you want to call it, it's just called different things around the country. Instead of that being going out and doing shovel tests again, or going out and doing pedestrian survey again, you actually do archaeology on the database, and you query the database for all these different things and all this amazing amount of information that's already been collected. I mean, right now. Some people might be saying to themselves, well, we already do that when we do a literature search, but we don't. Ab- we absolutely do not do that when we do a literature search. A literature search right now is what other reports were written. Sure, we can look at their conclusions and find out what they, what they did, but we can't really see their data. Um, we can kind of see their data in the form of the site records that they turned in and, and maybe in some tables that they might have in their site report if they, if they really did a good job. But that's not really looking at their data. I want to see their raw data. I want to see. I want to be able to query and say, you know, how many uh, tertiary obsidian flakes did you guys find? And I, I don't want to have to digitize all their information to find that. I want to know exactly what they were and where they were, and tie that database to a GIS so I can see all that stuff in real time. And that's that's what I think. You know, where, where Bill is right, we shouldn't make these tools that we're using get in the way of doing archaeology. But if we use these tools the right way they can be better than a shovel. You know, they can be better than our trowels and they can become the archaeological tools themselves, you know, sort of creating the archaeological tools of tomorrow rather than having them get away of our other archaeological tools. I don't know. That's my take on it. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is great. I mean, so, so for example, um, I was at a conference, they're talking about scanning. So laser scanning. Yeah. And it's been something like there's been no less than like 13 complete laser scanning surveys of Pompeii. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and the reason that is, is because there's this, I'm going to bring up this other magical word, which is proprietary. Now, sometimes things become proprietary in the sense that they, that means not shareable or not yeah. shared, like code, but also data. Right. Uh, by virtue of the fact that they have just, you know, they're, it's a university, they tried to do an experiment or whatever. Sometimes it can be based on the law, et cetera. Um, so I actually feel um, that paper records, the records as we're generating them now, are proprietary by design. If you if you do a literary search and you find a literature search, and all you're doing is getting a list of documents that you then have to pour over to figure out some form of outcome as to whether or not you should do a survey in this particular area, um, you're just basically doing the same work over and over and over again. So oh, that's yeah. not cool. So let's, let's let's do some shout outs here. So Tdar is really looking at a way of, of, of focusing specifically on things like CRM data to make it much more usable. 
if you combine that with the, 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 the ideas and the ideals of something like open context, where then we can literally get down to exactly what you described because it's actually data and you mm -hmm. can start to say, okay, uh, these 17 sites, or if you go to Dyna and look at entire, like thousands of sites across the landscape or across states, you can really start to do some very interesting trend analysis. Now, both organizations said all of the costs of putting in things into TDAR and open context have to do with the fact that they have to do so much epic cleanup of the data to make <laughs> it even possible to put in because right. the data weren't collected with the intention of this. That's what we're talking about. That is exactly what we're talking about, is thinking through how you want your data to be shared. So if we collect it in a way that actually will, pr will produce data that can be shared, then we'll be able to do amazing things with it. And I don't know about you, but if I had to spend my time doing a search, I would rather be actually doing an analysis at the very same moment, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So for okay, okay, these guys have the stuff, and and we've gone through the process of finding that the stuff is there, whether it's an information center, a library, what have you. But our expectation now is that it's going to be at Google. We're going to be able to do the search, find exactly what we're looking for. It's going to be at the top ten list. Or I'm going to say, give me or or like going to Amazon and going shopping, and you're going to be able to click some buttons and boom, bang, boom, and get exactly you know, the, the, the snowboarding boots that you're looking for by virtue of hitting three things that that's only possible by fastening the data by design. Mm -hmm. It's not magic. It, it, that's the other thing. It's not magic. It's actually not magic. It's just hard work <laughs> or designing the data to actually be searchable by design. So, um, so I'll stop there, but then, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about some of the things we're going to try to do with Codify. Now, speaking of Codify, Let's talk about this. We've talked about data and, and how to collect it and, 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 well, not how to collect it, but like what to collect and what we can do with it and, and, and things like that. So let's bring Codify into this, um, you know, and, and exactly how we're collecting. People have heard me talk about on this podcast, Tap Forms. That's the thing I'm using right now because that's the best solution I could find that was affordable. I didn't see the point like some other firms have done in spending a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand dollars and creating an application that I've got to stay on top of um, you know, with Apple's updates every three months and make sure I've got a developer on hand that can uh make sure make it so my app doesn't break and all my field crews are like, hey, this uh update didn't work and now the app's crashing every three seconds. I didn't want to get into that because this space is changing so quickly. So I went with something that was a little more a little more modifiable by me and <laughs> I could use it and, and, and change it on the fly and do whatever I needed to do. And, uh, but that being said, um, I will drop that in a minute if something better comes along because that's the way science works. And, uh, uh and that brings me to codify. So what is, what is codify? What, what, uh, you know, what are we going to say about that? All right. So, um, codify is, two things really in my head. One is it, 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 it absolutely is going to be a product. Now, mm -hmm. product, is it gonna be a product like Lightroom or ArcGIS right. um, that has a particular price point? That's to be determined. But a product in, sort of, in terms of something that you can depend on like a trowel. I feel like this is a really important statement. I, I, I'm not gonna beat around the bush and talk about, you know, um, well, we're going to do this thing and we're going to produce this open source software that won't be supported. Mm -hmm. So everything that we've been doing so far to date, to date has been about producing things that can be supported. So just a real quick, real quick version of this story goes like this. So again, Mukadu CMS, um, open source software that's been five years and about two and a half million dollars of development to make open source software that works, that's supportable. And that's completely documented and it's open for everyone to do with it whatever they will. And we finally accomplished that. And again, a great shout out to, to Washington State University, but also to IMLS and NEH and everyone else who's helped to fund that effort and the hundreds of people around the world that all have contributed to making that code base amazing and awesome. It's also built on something called Drupal, which you know has over 250,000 developers worldwide, literally a quarter million people who are mm -hmm. all trying to make it better. So... What I want to see you do, and this is the great experiment, and by the way, this is the invitation to you and everyone else listening. 
we're gonna we we're unapologetically gonna talk about the notion of modular code. So while we'll start using the tools that we're gonna use to make it work on say iPads and iPhones and Windows Surface tablets and and PCs and Macs, just like you, if there's a different instrument, like a different uh, technological platform, make it to make Codify work on that's better. Mm-hmm. We'll do that too. But for now, we're going to be able to. We're working on this. So let's, let's just talk about what modular code means, real briefly. Okay. So if you're doing a particular type of archaeology in the Northwest, or you're working on an archaeological project in Syria, or in Mississippi, yes, the archaeology is the same, except that it isn't. So in the sense that <laughs> we get punished by the virtue of the notion of generalizable tools, mm-hmm. like using Excel or Word or even ArcGIS in a more uh, generalizable brute force sort of way. And, and then we come up with endless workarounds to, to, to address the shortfalls of that particular tool. I mean, I love Adobe Lightroom and we use 5% of its functions. Everyone talks about Photoshop the same way. Right. So what we want to do is have a very modular, very lean approach to design. So it, you know, for example, if you're not doing survey, then, and you're never doing survey, then, but you're doing tons of excavation, then the, 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 we call that a composition. So the composition will be the modules that, that come together to help you do the, the excavation, the way that you want to do that. Um, if you're using a total station, then you have to have a module that allows you to use a total station. But if you're using a GPS, using RTK unit, then there should be a module that does that. So I'm encouraging everyone who's interested, who has ideas around what they would like to see be part of, of a modular approach to design, to get in touch, because mm-hmm. um, that's what we've been doing. Uh, and that's been the kind of the secret to the success here. So for example, we've come up with, a, we'll call it a composition, um, that's worked really well in um, Israel, Jordan, and strangely enough, also in Ethiopia, uh, because all of these guys have a same, very similar approach, a locus system approach to excavation um, and the excavation unit and the way pottery buckets and the kind of notions and the terms that are being used that works generally. Where things get more interesting is the specifics. So if on my project, we call them pottery, we call them bags as opposed to buckets, right? Or mm-hmm. baskets as opposed to buckets. Then the expectation when I say PB is that I, it in fact means basket. Now that may seem like a very subtle thing, but believe it or not, that'll be, that'll be a, if I have a paper form and I print the word basket on it, then I'm done, right? That's part right. of the software, okay? <laughs> Seriously, think about that. How many times yeah. have we had to use software and bend the way that we work in order to make the software work. That's not cool. So the entire intention of Codify is to make it possible for people to configure all the terms that actually matches to the way that it works. And it won't be a perfect match, of course, but I really feel like this can actually be possible. And I feel like that's that's what's happening. So we're, we're looking at building these different compositions, understanding the different type of modules that we, that, that need to exist, and yes, we're really going to dedicate an entire company, Codify Inc., which is a benefit corporation, um, towards actually making this real. But I want to point out another thing, and and it's like, it, this is a new startup venture. Uh-huh. We've learned a lot from from being the Center for Digital Archaeology. My my dream and my intention, as we have done successfully now with these other other things, is to when I say make it affordable, I mean really truly make it affordable. So that it will be adopted, it's not going to be like a juggernaut kind of methodology. Like our our intention is not to become the next Microsoft or Esri. It instead it is to produce better archaeological data, um, and and it's really been it's been wonderful. Now talking with my colleagues, um, we're all a bit you know rightfully let's say competitive uh, at the at, and and everyone finally getting to understand the approach that I'm taking. It's it's an approach that's approachable. It's an approach that's human. So it isn't like, okay, we've heard from a thousand people, here's this product and it sells for $5,000, right? It's right. not that at all. It is about like, let's let's get the code out there, let's publish the code 
and how we'll like make this organization sustainable most likely will be through as we've done it in the past through services through through our own training training ventures for doing projects for for building crazy bespoke things that will only work for three people but are really cool that's that's the idea so um so we're excited so timing wise we will have a version of codify 2.0 it is you know after three years that, that is what it will be coming mm -hmm. out in april specifically to focus on the way that archaeology is being done as i mentioned in israel and jordan and kind of the middle east we're working on a codify crm which is focusing mostly on california nevada and new mexico style archaeology and that's been amazing and anyone has ideas for that we want to hear about it maybe uh maybe the i don't know chris for example <laughs> as an example um and and we'll just take the ideas we'll figure out how to get it funded and we'll start building better paperless um tools we're focusing a lot of energy on photogrammetry mm -hmm. and specifically on doc and on just dealing with the literally thousands of pictures that you need to take yeah um and and so there are a variety of different it's called like research ventures that we're um that we're focusing on so i've never been this excited um we've we've just started this kind of new venture at the beginning of the year and uh it's been a bit overwhelming <laughs> by mm -hmm. the by the amount of interest and engage, engagement but the best part is unlike any time i've ever done this in the past and you exactly what i'm talking about 10 years of beating our heads against the wall of like hey guys have you ever thought about taking this paperless so like uh go away <laughs> <laughs> Is the, is the amount of exuberance and excitement that basically everyone I'm talking about, talking to and listening to, there is a huge amount of excitement and um, that gets me up in the morning. It's really exciting. So, so yeah, any questions you have, I'm, I'm willing to talk about. I know we're running out of time, but. Well, no, this is, uh, this is great because that all kind of, that kind of wraps it all up. You know, we talked about all of it and now we're going to have a. A nice, easy way to collect this information because there's, there's, I mean, there's a, a 500 different ways out there right now that people could, could uh, quote unquote go paperless if they wanted to, but some of them are way better than others, and and a lot of them have issues, and um, it's, uh, it would be nice to have, like you said, a somewhat customizable solution so you can, so you can just take the tools that you need out into the field, um, and, and also to reiterate something you said earlier. Um, you know, a couple of things you said earlier about the TurboTax deal, uh, you know, and answering questions and, and then about, um, you know, equating sites from, say, Israel to New Mexico. This isn't this isn't rocket science. It's archaeology. So, uh, you know, a site, a site, no matter where you're at in the world, has some of the same some of the similar parameters, similar similar characteristics. They're not all identical, obviously, but there are similarities. There are similarities in what you record and how you record, and and creating a simple tool to do that with that is partially customizable to to help with those non similarities is perfect, and that's all we need. Um, you know, we don't need uh, what I wouldn't like to see, and, and which I think. We'll probably actually see a little bit of moving forward. Hopefully not. Hopefully they'll be smarter than that. But, you know, we have 50 different site forms in the 50 United States because states are independent. Shippos are independent for the most part. Other agencies are independent. The BLM is independent and, and, and other agencies that create their own forms. Not realizing that, you know, this has all come up in a situation where they couldn't really talk to each other easily. So they had to come up with their own solution. But now we can start coming up with unified solutions because I'm recording a site in California, Nevada, New Mexico, Mississippi, you know, New England somewhere. I can probably use the same form for about 90% of recording that site. And there's only a couple small things in there I might have to add in for my particular area. But for the most part, it's all the same. And then we can spit out the form that they need. And that's the, that's the goal later on, I think. that The ultimate goal is to is to have archaeologists do archaeology again and not worry about what, you know, did I miss a certain block on a form or something like that. So anyway, I think we're going to, uh, we're going to wrap this up. Any, any final thoughts on, uh, on all this? Like, um, you know, in the last say, uh, 60 seconds here, where, what's your, what's your blue sky goal for all this? Where do you want to see this in? Uh, I was going to say 10 years, but really five years where do you, <laughs> it's changing too fast to say 10 years, 10 years, it'll all be holographic. So, um, you know, or, we'll or, or it'll be reverted back to paper. <laughs> right. Well, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Is it the, we're at the tipping point where that's going to happen. So, so where would you like to see it though? 
Yeah. So um, I point out that yeah, 2020 is in four years. Um, I thought yeah. I thought it was in five, but I didn't do the math so well. <laughs> Imagine that. Like we were talking about this earlier, and so I, I basically would say I would love to see um, our ability to collect is the three C's of what we call it. Mm-hmm. Our ability to collect information and data, and also make the the and have at our fingertips while we're collecting it, the the full breadth and and width of all the information that has been already collected at our fingertips while we're making those decisions in the field. Mm-hmm. So the three the three C's we talk about are collect, curate, and connect. And it, by that we basically mean go out and collect the the most amazing, rich information you possibly can. Because many times in archaeology, what does make us us unique is you get one chance to do it. Mm-hmm. It may not be if you excavate it, you don't get a second chance. Curate that information, make it as easy as possible for us to produce better information and and put curatorial tools into our fingertips. Again, not translating stuff and copy and pasting from one Microsoft Word document to the next, but really having the tools to transform information and make it archival, which means, okay, so I have these files in one format that actually have to be turned into a different format. Making that as easy as possible, I absolutely believe that we'll have those tools by 2020. And the third is connect, meaning there is no right one way of doing this. And we're seeing, just look at how much the web has changed in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And everyone says that, but it actually is really true. And it's been an explosive change in just the last couple of years. So as we're, I'm envisioning a future where, where information is both, A, much more compartmentalized, meaning less centrally located, by virtue of the fact that we have figured out a way to share it ethically, to share it with, responsibly, right? Right. And that goes back to, collecting the information in the right way so it actually can be shared. Um, I'm very hopeful, I'm very optimistic, and um, we're very, very open-minded to hearing all sorts of ways that we should be able to make that happen. So I think archaeology in 2020 is going to be awesome. All right, well, I'm going to leave you with this then because my one suggestion for Codify is that it connects directly to Oculus within the next three months. So... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I, I'm I'm so getting on right on that as soon as I go, like drink my own blood. But yeah, I'm on it. That'll be after I drink my own blood. The next thing I do is build it for Oculus next three months. So Outstanding. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Michael. This is awesome. And uh, when you get some more stuff out, we'll have you back on to talk about it. And uh, and uh, we'll just keep this conversation going. All right. Thank you so much. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.